We are Community Radio, Kilkenny City, 88.7 FM. Nicholas O'Brien and Shaw. Curra and Ish Steve, Eshtaklam, a radio fobble car Kilkenny, 88.7 FM. A Rene Clog, Gossarden, nor a big may a kind for Kursi Atula. Marshin, Faltuk Kyologus Kora, Gox Saturn, a radio fobble car Kilkenny, 88.7 FM, a Rene Clog, Le Oriot or Sam Hyre Chadwicks. City Sport on Community Radio Kilkenny City from 12 to 2 each Saturday. Hurling, camogie, soccer, rugby, racing, basketball and much more. Sponsored by Michael Ling Motors for Ford and Hyundai. City Sport on 88.7 FM and on the World Wide Web every Saturday from 12 noon. Hi, I'm Frank Tynan. Inviting you to join me on Saturday at 5. Every Saturday at 5. We'll meet interesting people, look inside the weekend papers, go back in history, and of course, great music from Ireland's best entertainers. So let's make it a date, Saturday at 5, only on your community radio, Kilkenny City, on 88.7 FM. Afternoon and welcome to another Kilkenny Today. Myself, Morris O'Connor, here with you again. Uh, the Friday, the 22nd of January, uh, just about seven minutes past five here on Community Radio Kilkenny City. Hope you're going to stay with us for the next hour and through on into the evening, of course, with Talk Sport after the Angeles and Community News at the top of the hour at six, Kilkenny Communities in Action at seven, and then the, the latest in our series of Young Irish Filmmakers podcasts from 8.30 to 9, and then new and old school dance classics with John Moore after that, taking you through the rest of the evening here on Community Radio Kilkenny City, 88.7 FM, and, of course, crkc.ie on the internet. I hope you enjoyed listening to Liam Langrell there. It sounds classical for the last couple of hours. He always leaves us with something rousing. A safe home to you, Liam, if you're listening. Uh, great, great to hear you're live and well and kicking and uh, in great form and playing the lovely music that you usually do. And thanks for doing that for the last couple of hours. Um, just before we get started with the show, our pieces in today's show, there was a notice from the County Council I got this morning by text on their map alerter or their text alerter service, which is a great service, uh, about the water having been cut off or about being supposed to be cut off around the Auburn Drive in Glendine earlier um, today, which is due to be back at 4 p.m. this afternoon. So hopefully it will be back by now. But um, it's great service to have that text alert from 
the, the council, but it does, uh, it is relevant to something we'll be covering later on in the show because we'll be hearing from Angela Ryan from Irish Water and she's a water supply and resources strategy specialist and she'll be telling us about um, Irish Water's first ever national water resources plan and what that involves. So just after the, the weather there in the middle of the show, we'll be hearing from Angela Ryan. Um, after that, then uh, towards the end of the show, we'll be hearing from Anne Shortall, who's the Director of Services with Bagnallstown Family Resource Centre. And that's in relation to childcare workers and where they are on the priority list for COVID-19 vaccination. Thing, um, relevant to the first item on today's show as well. And our first guest is Professor Carol LaRue, who is an obesity specialist at St. Vincent's University Hospital in Dublin. And uh, Carol, of course, uh, being involved in um, obesity and diabetes and stuff, uh, would be well aware of the impact that those that COVID-19 can have on people with either one or other or both of those conditions and uh, where maybe they might be on the vaccination list. So good afternoon, Professor LaRue. Lovely to have you with us. Good afternoon. Um, yeah, I, I, as I was saying, there like uh, people with obesity and uh, diabetes. I think it's been well publicised over the last year and a bit now, or almost a year, that um, people in, with with those conditions, one or other, or both, um, are at increased risk. So, how would you describe the the extra impact that could be added to a COVID infection for a person who has diabetes and or is obese? So what we've now understood is that really um, people who have obesity and diabetes, they have um, inflammation already of the small blood vessels that run around the heart or around the brain or certainly around the lungs. And the new insight is that when this virus attacks the patients, um, they also attack these small blood vessels around the lungs. And it certainly is this combination of having a disease that increases the risk of the blood vessels and now a virus that increases the blood, the infection of the blood vessels that causes people to become so short of breath because oxygen can just not move from the lungs into the blood vessels. So that's really the new insights um, that mm-hmm. we now have when we treat these patients. And that, that applies, does that apply, that those kind of symptoms of that inflammation apply to people with, with both diabetes um, or, or just obesity or, or one or the other in particular? Well, it actually applies to both, but it also explains to us why older people are at such high risk. Because when you have a really young person, you know, who is five years old or 10 years old, we don't see them really going to ITU in the same numbers. But if you have somebody who is 70 or 80 years old, where we know there's a lot of furring up of the arteries, or you have a younger person who's maybe 40 years old with diabetes or 40 years old with obesity, they are the ones that end up having the severe complications of COVID. Mm. And I think listeners will also be familiar that uh, with the, the well, that well, at least knowing anyway that there are two different types of diabetes: type one and type two. And then, in in, in cases of people with diabetes and having uh, COVID infections, are there any noticeable differences between um, the impact of COVID on on the person if they've got either type one or type two diabetes, whichever camp they're in? The very interesting data that's only become available recently that showed that both people with type 1 diabetes and people with type 2 diabetes 
are at much higher risk um, when they contract COVID. And again, maybe it should not have surprised us because both of those type of diabetes, although they're completely different diseases, you're absolutely right, um, but both of those diseases attack the small blood vessels in the eyes or the mm. kidneys or the nerves. So we call this microvascular complications. And that's exactly mm. what the virus does as well. It attacks these small blood vessels around the lung. Um, and of course, if you have both, either type 1 or type 2 plus COVID, you are in real trouble. Yeah, so it's kind of the, um, the virus has a much more uh, welcoming kind of environment for it to, to, for it to attack, I suppose, than if you've got those, that sort of existing inflammation that you, you described. And then in terms of, you know, if people um, do contract uh, COVID and they end up in a hospital environment um like can you describe like how much more challenging it is for kind of health care professionals to to have to work with um people who are infected with covid and who also are dealing with diabetes or, or and obesity yeah. so certainly um if somebody who has both type 2 diabetes or type 1 diabetes or obesity when they come to hospital it's much harder um, to um, treat them for the reasons that mechanically it's very often harder to ventilate people, so to get enough oxygen into the lungs so that the oxygen can go into the bloodstream. Um, now that makes, uh, makes a real problem, but the bigger problem comes um, when the lungs don't work well enough and then the other organs also start running into trouble. So, you know, for example, we call that multiple organ failure. Mm -hmm. um, so if your kidneys stop working or your heart doesn't work as well anymore or your liver is not working, um, so people who have diabetes and people who have obesity are much more prone to having other organs that also run into trouble. And that's mm -hmm. the reason why people end up on the intensive care unit uh, when they need the support of all of these organs. Yeah, and that's and what, what we would like to prevent. Yeah, yeah, Professor Larue, what what proportion roughly of people who are in hospital at the moment are indeed the subset of those who are in ICU, or even people who have tragically died following COVID infection? Are are people with diabetes and obesity are they disproportionately represented? Yes. So if you have um, type two diabetes, type one diabetes, or obesity, you're at almost two or three times higher risk of needing um, ventilation on the intensive care unit and also approximately the same for dying um, from the complications of COVID. And that's what we now want to target because we would like everybody to get vaccinated tomorrow. But unfortunately, our resources are not such that we are able to do that. So we have to work out where can we do the most good. And I suspect that, that is by treating those that are most vulnerable, um, but also treating those patients that will allow the healthcare system to survive. Because if we suddenly fill all our intensive care unit beds, um, for example, with people who had COVID and diabetes or COVID with obesity, um, then we don't have enough beds left um, for other medical emergencies that may not be COVID related. So we now know who is at most risk and therefore if we can target our vaccinations to those people that would benefit most but also those that would benefit the system most, we have a win-win situation. Yeah, and just just speaking of the vaccine or the, the, the various vaccines uh, that have been either approved or, or be in the process of being approved, um, 
you know, ha have people who have diabetes or obesity been included in the the uh, the studies on the safety of the vaccination prior to their being approved, or what level of confidence is around around safety of the, these vaccinations for people with diabetes or obesity? Unfortunately, in the society where we live, um, one in four people have the disease of obesity and approximately one in 12 have the, the disease of diabetes. Um, so that means that all the vaccines were tested in a large number of people who also had obesity or who had diabetes. So we're very confident that the vaccines work for them. Um, and I think it's also a good, a good news that the HSC has um, prioritized, the government has prioritized people with obesity and with diabetes um, to be, you know, at least um, in the middle of the priority list. But I think now with the new information coming out, we would really urge people um, if they are offered the vaccine and they have diabetes or they have obesity to really take it up. Um, and we would urge the government to continue to keep an eye on the new developments because it may be that we have to move people a little bit higher up on the priority list. Um, and mm -hmm. that's, that's really what we are advocating mm -hmm. for. Mm -hmm. how, many, how many people are you talking about in the total population then, uh, Professor LaRue, that, that you know, would be uh, vulnerable due to diabetes or obesity? Yeah, so certainly with an island, we're looking at at least 200,000 people who have diabetes. And in Ireland, we're looking at at least a million people who have obesity. So that really tells you what the scale of the problem is. Mm. Um, and it also reminds us that people who have diabetes and people who have obesity are at much higher risk of coming to harm and dying, even without COVID. And mm. I think that's an important issue for us, that once um, this pandemic will pass, and it will pass, um, that we shouldn't forget about treating the diseases of diabetes and treating the diseases of obesity um, to a much better level. Because I don't think um, we thought at the beginning of this pandemic that people with diabetes or people with obesity would be at such high risk. And it just shows yeah. you how dreadful those diseases are, and we need to do better next time. Yes, because it's, it's a learning. Um, there wasn't anything from previous year's histories of the normal, if you want to call them normal, winter flus and their impact, that impact on, on people with diabetes or obesity. Or did, did, does the normal winter flu have an impact? No, not to the same extent as COVID did. Because you see, what the winter flu does is attacks the inside of the lungs. Um, but what this virus does is it attacks effectively the outside where the blood vessels are. Um, yeah. So the inside of the lungs of people with obesity or diabetes are not any different to the rest of the population, but it's really this outside area that is so vulnerable because of COVID that is already diseased, um, and that's they get effectively a double hit. Because mm -hmm. it's, it's a huge number, as you, you um, mentioned there, like between nearly, I suppose, not far short of maybe one and a quarter million people between um, having diabetes or indeed being obese, um, it's probably nearly a quarter of the population or there or thereabouts right. of the country. A huge cohort of people, um, you know, if there was to be any prioritization, there'd probably have to be prioritization of a subgroup even within that cohort of people who are either obese or who have diabetes. Yeah, that is correct. You know, that um, even just doing that cohort would be challenging. Um, but what we've seen so many times in the past is because obesity, especially obesity, was not considered a real disease, 
and that people are deprioritized, um, for example, um, and that's very unhelpful. That was sort of done for more political reasons because people who have the disease of obesity, they don't really want to speak up. They're very often ashamed of their mm-hmm. disease or they think it's their fault. And what we're now seeing is it's a, a disease like any else. And, you know, what the data clearly shows is that um, these people are at much higher risk and therefore the right thing to do, not only to protect them, but also to protect the health system, would be um, to prioritise them for um, vaccinations. And Professor Rue, just before we let you go, and thank you again for joining us, um, we might just close with, um, is there is there much happening currently in the kind of research sphere in the area of diabetes and obesity research, um, I know there's huge amounts of effort or attention being played generally across medical research into, into genetics. And then there's also, I've heard a lot of talk recently in, in a number of different linkages between um, the gut and the brain. So are, 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 what's happening in all that research area as, as it applies to diabetes and obesity? So today was actually a fantastic day because um, a very important paper was published today to show that we can cure type 2 diabetes with operations on the stomach. And that is something that we never thought we would be able to do. So even if we look at 10 years, um, almost a third of people with type 2 diabetes can remain in remission um, after operations that's done on the stomach. So that's really... Um, groundbreaking and revolutionary. So that's, I think, one of the major ideas at the moment because we thought for so long that all we can do with type 2 diabetes is just um, slow it down. But Mm. now what we see is we can actually turn the clock back and put people in remission. I think that's a a very hopeful note to end up um, on um, that. There's certainly medical research will bring a cure um, for most of the diseases we're struggling with right now. No, that's great bit of news to finish up with. Um, thank you again for joining us, Professor Carl. Thank you. Lovely. And have a good weekend. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Take care. Uh, and that was Professor Carl LaRue, who's an obesity specialist at St. Vincent's um, University Hospital in Dublin. He's also the chair of experimental pathology in UCD. So uh, great news there, actually, that, uh, as he mentioned, that paper being published just today, um, demonstrating or asserting that uh, type 2 diabetes can be curable. Um, with a stomach uh, operation and people can go into remission from it and be which sounds like wonderful news if you are afflicted by that and indeed um, if people had had the opportunity to have had that surgery I suppose it would reduce their risk of exposure to well not exposure to but um, serious impact of COVID-19 infection I suppose nothing can beat uh, staying safe doing the masks doing the hand washing the social distance being in confined spaces and staying away from crowds and all of that, but uh, it still won't stop, unfortunately, people getting infected. Anyway, it's uh, 22 minutes, nearly 23 minutes past five o'clock. About time we took our first ad break on today's show. Um, after the ads, we come back, we'll have a quick look at the weather. So do stay with us and we'll be back with you in just a couple of minutes after these. We are Community Radio, Kilkenny City, 88.7 FM. You're listening to Kilkenny Today with Morris O'Connor on Community Radio Kilkenny City, 88.7 FM. And welcome back to Kilkenny Today. Morris O'Connor with you as usual, of course, here on the Friday, the 22nd of January. 27 minutes or thereabouts past five o'clock here on Community Radio City. Community Radio Kilkenny City. It's probably the same time everywhere else as well around the country. Or it certainly should be. Um, just have a quick look at the Irish Water website. And it's now saying that the works are complete on that water supply disruption 
that near the Glendine area in Auburn Drive. Works are now complete and supply should begin to return to all affected properties. Now, that was an update at 10 to 5 this evening, so they should be well on the way to being uh, restored by now if you've had that uh, bit of disruption in your water supply during the day. And apropos of that, I'm delighted to be joined on the line now by Angela Ryan, who's a water supply and resources strategy specialist with Irish Water. Good afternoon, Angela. Good afternoon, Morris. How are you? I'm very well indeed. I know there's nothing that you can do for us in relation to the uh, just this afternoon's uh, water outage there in uh, part of um, Kilkenny City, but uh, we won't we won't go into that. But what I was intrigued to find out was that um, Irish Water has recently, I think just before Christmas, launched its very very first ever, I think the very first ever nationwide um, national water resources framework plan, and it's opened it up to consultation. Um, I suppose part of the reason why we haven't had a plan like this before is kind of historic and the fact that um, all of the, the water supply was dealt with originally, well, at some point in time up until relatively recently all by individual county councils but now since the advent of Irish water it's all come together and now you've produced a national uh, water supply framework plan. So maybe you just tell us ab- about the, the, the plan, a bit. how did it come into being and what, you, what is it trying to, to do achieve? Okay, and, and thank you uh, for that uh, really good in, introduction there. Our, our 25 uh, year resources plan is really Irish Water's way of looking at every single water supply within the country. So when we look across all of the counties uh, within the Republic of Ireland, uh, there's 539 individual water supplies. So we have a very, very large number of individual isolated water supplies uh, across the country. Uh, as you were saying there, these uh, previously were operated by 31 individual local authority uh, jurisdictions. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to set a baseline. So we're trying to understand uh, where we are with all of those water supplies, how they perform, and obviously the problems that were experienced in, uh, in Kilkenny there today uh, would be part of that process. We're trying to see how our, our supplies form um, or perform in terms of uh, the quality of the water uh, we provide, the quantity of water we can provide uh, to meet uh, growth and, um, and economic development, uh, the resilience of our water supplies, um, and also the sustainability of our water supplies. So are we protecting the environment when we extract water from certain locations? So this part of the plan, we're looking at all of the problems across all of our supplies uh, we'll we'll draw a line under that. We're, consul- we're consulting on it uh, at present. And when we finish that consultation process, we'll then start to roll out plans. So plans for upgrades, uh, plans for investments, uh, plans for uh, future projects uh, and proposals for all of those problematic uh, water supplies that we've identified. So wherever you are within the country, uh, be you served by a very, very small water treatment plant in a rural area or in a large urban centre, you'll be able to understand what the issues are with your water supply and you'll be able to have visibility of uh, the plans and programmes that Irish Water will put into place over the coming years through our investment plans to improve uh, the quality of those services. And is there, I was going to say, is there a high level kind of vision around a plan such as this to have a situation, say, where, you know, one, one thing you might be, might aspire to anyway is a situation where you never have to issue um, water restriction notices or whatever they're called, you know, that that would be a reflection of how well the uh, the water supply situation would have been addressed? Uh, yeah. 
Uh, Morris, uh, that's, that's exactly the point. Within our plan, we're setting out those standards. So what uh, the, the standards uh, that we're uh, hoping to achieve would be that uh, customers uh, only have very, very infrequent interruptions to their supplies. Uh, so under very uh, normal weather conditions that you might only expect uh, to get an interruption to your supply uh, once in every 50 years. So that we would have enough, uh, we would have enough capacity in the systems uh, to ensure that there was no large-scale outages for uh, for any uh, customers. Uh, then we have different standards, slightly different standards for uh, drought periods. So in 2018, um, we had quite a significant uh, drought there. And what we'd be saying is in those drought periods, uh, if um, a one in 10 year drought period, uh, that we should only have minor uh, disruptions to customer supplies. So uh, light touch uh, um, requirements such as uh, not not hosing lawns, not um, not washing cars during those periods, uh, but that uh, customers would not notice any other difference uh, to their uh, level of service. Right. So this seems like a very ambitious thing to try and pull together all the various strands of water supply needs. And uh, you mentioned quality and quantity. I just was going to ask you about that as well, but you mentioned it anyway. Um, across the entire country and uh, with the, the number of kind of diverse water um, sources or water supply sources that you're, you were talking about there a moment ago, how are you going to go about um, kind of assessing and pulling together the, the na a national picture out of all of that diversity? Um, yeah, uh, so um, for supply, we've looked at it in terms of risk. Uh, so we've looked at the way those uh, supplies uh, perform right now, uh, the, the type of uh, sources they're abstracting from. So we can have different types of abstractions, uh, abstractions from rivers and lakes. Uh, and the water quality uh, in those uh, water bodies can change uh, over periods of time. So, for instance, uh, after a stormy event where there's a lot of runoff uh, from the land, uh, the water quality can deteriorate for periods of time uh, in those supplies. Uh, we also have groundwater supplies, so they're more protected uh, from uh, rainfall events. So we have uh, we've applied barrier standards. So standards that we would like to achieve in terms of uh, each of those uh, uh, water treatment plants uh, across the country, depending on the source of water that they have. Uh, we then look at the infrastructure that's in place, so the type of treatment uh, we have in place, its ability to deal uh, with those different types of scenarios. And then where we notice a shortfall uh, in the kit we have in place, uh, we put it on our investment plan, our future investment plans for uh, upgrades, etc., to those uh, individual sites. So again, we've looked at every single site uh, individually. Uh, we have a level of detail there at present. Uh, as our information um, increases over time, uh, we'll improve those risk assessments for each uh, each site as we go along. Mm. And um, you, you know, a couple of things that occurred to me when, when I was thinking about uh, you know the, the, the overall water supply uh, question as well. Like, as you well know, um, even though you mentioned 539 individual water supplies around the country, I assume that there's that no way goes near covering the number of private group water schemes and the likes that are out there. Is there any thinking around what their role is in the kind of the longer term, medium to longer term future of water supply in the country? Uh, absolutely. Based on current estimates, there's probably um, about uh, 900 uh, group water schemes uh, across the country. Um, they, 
a bit like our our own water supplies. Uh, they vary in terms of performance. So there's some really, really good uh, group water schemes within the country and then some group water schemes that over time uh, maybe uh, haven't as performed as well as they should have. So uh, in terms of our plan, uh, when we're looking at our plan, our, our plan is only for the public water supply. Uh, but Irish Water does have a policy uh, there for taking in charge uh, of group water schemes uh, that perhaps uh, aren't uh, aren't uh, currently uh, being uh, being operated uh, uh, at present. So, if you're a group water scheme, uh, you can apply to be taken in charge by Irish Water. Okay, and have many people taken up that option in, in recent years? Uh, yes, uh, there there can be quite there can be uh, quite a range uh, of take up uh, in many areas where group water schemes uh, would have been set up within local communities and maybe the uh, caretakers are getting a little bit older and there's nobody to hand over the reins to. There is an interest uh, in some of those areas in Irish Water uh, taking over or taking in charge uh, those supplies. Uh, in other areas, as I said, they're, um, they're really, really good uh, group water schemes, uh, very well organised. Um, they, uh, they operate under the uh, tutelage of uh, National Federation of Group Water Schemes. So in, in terms of how we, uh, how we function alongside those, uh, obviously uh, we try to work with the National uh, Federation, uh, ensure that uh, all of our policies and standards uh, are aligned, uh, ensure that we're touching base with the EPA, uh, finding out uh, any issues coming uh, down the line. Uh, for instance, uh, new legislation on water abstraction and uh, the water framework uh, directive. Mm -hmm. Now, I was, um, I'm, uh, I think I may have mentioned to my listeners on air, I used to work in ESB. I'm originally a civil engineer by training from way, way, way back when uh, in the deep mists of time. But myself and some of my now retired ex-colleagues were just chatting the other day over our virtual Zoom lunches, which we've been doing for the last year nearly. And uh, the subject of water extraction from the Shannon came up. Um, is, is that part of the strategic thinking around this uh, water supply and resources or the National Water Resources Plan? Yep, uh, great, great question there, Mark. So, in in this in this part of our plan, uh, we're really uh, looking at the problems across our waters, uh, all of our water supplies, uh, and set, setting the standards uh, we would like to achieve. So that's the framework plan we're out to consultation with now. Uh, when we've adopted that plan, we're going to uh, progress four regional water resources plans. So those regional water resources plans will be where we go down into the nuts and bolts. Uh, every single water supply uh, where we find a problem. We'll then look at all of the options to resolve those problems. So uh, let's say if you're uh, in Kilkenny City, uh, we'll look at all of the potential uh, water, uh, water supplies, uh, natural raw water bodies uh, in the vicinity, uh, the rivers, uh, any lakes nearby, any potential groundwater sources. And then we'll work through a process of understanding what is the best solution uh, for the given area. So obviously, um, as, as, as we go uh, throughout the country, uh, the Shannon is quite a large river. So in many areas, that will be one of the options uh, that we look at to resolve identified water, problem, uh, identified water problems. Uh, but again, the purpose of the plan is to look at all potential op options and then to screen those down to a preferred option for every single area. So we go, we go into the process um, looking for the maximum possible uh, number of options we can assess and then we work our way towards a preferred approach. 
And is it, is it, is the, the assessment kind of uh, primarily a kind of an engineering kind of assessment or does it include um, financial considerations whereby you'd be kind of making strategic choices around the things which you've heard mentioned a lot in the media over the recent years around the, the choices between fixing major leaks and or sourcing new supplies or combining both or when is it um, better to do one rather than the other? Okay. Uh, we we would see we would see uh, all of all of the issues will require uh, multiple options. So um, for most water supplies, we would see um, leakage reduction, uh, water conservation uh, working hand in hand uh, with new supplies and improvements in existing supplies. So uh, leakage, uh, the the company has set leakage uh, standards uh, for ourselves that we will try to achieve. Uh, over the coming uh, years and when we do achieve those standards uh, we'll see if we can improve on those standards uh, even more but the solutions will be uh, a combination of both so new sustainable supplies and leakage reduction to take pressure off those supplies. And could I finish maybe uh, Angela and thanks a million for joining us here on the Friday afternoon here in Community Radio Kilkenny City just by asking you a question which may get into the, the controversial area of water charges. Is this one National Water Resources Plan going to raise the debate around water charges again? Um, I, 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 would, I wouldn't uh, think so. Um, uh, water charges uh, is obviously uh, a government policy piece so uh, I, I, I think I think that's largely uh, put to bed uh, at this stage. Um, within our plan, we do look at water conservation, though, because um, that that in in other jurisdictions, uh, water uh, charging uh, is used as a means of improving water conservation. And what we'd like to do is we'd like to see if there's any other ways of progressing uh, water conservation measures. So, uh, working with non-domestic users, uh, industry users. Uh, helping them audit their water use uh, to see if we can improve their efficiency uh, of the way they operate uh, and thus requiring less water. Uh, Irish Water also have a first fix free uh, uh, policy whereby if you notice uh, a leak uh, within your uh, on the service pipe within your public uh, within your private property, uh, you can apply for uh, a free repair. And we also advocate the use of uh, water-efficient uh, appliances uh, goods. We're involved in the Green Schools program as well, promoting water efficiency. Uh, so just because there uh, isn't uh, domestic, uh, domestic uh, tariffing uh, in place, one of the key pillars of our water resources plan is water conservation. Well, I'd be inter very interested again as a, as a former engineer, I'd be very interested to hear how the whole um, water resources um, framework plan goes. And indeed, it is open for public um, consultation process, I think, on your website, water.ie. And even though I'm in a house that has a well, I'll still be interested to, to hear how things go and what's planned for the water supply. Thanks a million, Angela Ryan, for joining us here in Community Radio, Kilkenny City. Okay, thanks. Thanks very much, Morris. You're very welcome. Have a good weekend. Andrew, bye-bye. Okay, that was, that was Angela Ryan. She's a water supply and resources strategy specialist. So, um, our, well, water.ie is the website and you can go and find out uh, a link to details of the National Water Resources Plan and participate in the consultation process around all of that. If you have any insights uh, into that or ideas around water supply, I'm sure they'd be delighted to hear them. It's now, uh, I think, about... Uh, 17 minutes or thereabouts to 6 o'clock it's about time we took an ad break but if, uh, after we're back after the ads uh, we'll be joined by Anne Shortle who's Director of Services with the Family Resource Centre in Bagnallstown 
and Anne has ideas and the National Forum of uh, Family Resource Centres have thoughts around the prioritisation of childcare workers in the, the list of people for COVID vaccination. So do stay with us. We'll be back in a couple of minutes time just after these. We are Community Radio, Kilkenny City, 88.7 FM. One thing I've learned after all these years For that real eclectic feel, it's KB's Rhythm and Roots every Saturday, 6 to 8 on Community Radio, Kilkenny City, 88.7 FM. Sunday evenings talk sport for reports, news, views and analysis of the weekend's action across all sports in Kilkenny City and County. Tune in to Community Radio Kilkenny City 88.7 FM for the best sports coverage with Nicky Brennan and the Community Radio Kilkenny City sports team. Electro City sponsoring Sports Roundup on Community Radio Kilkenny City 88.7 FM. Hi, Gordia. Show Shahrun O'Cassidy and Show. Here's to Gilin, Jedoni, on Nikajina Jess and Ehe, our Kyol's Kishin, our Ochtuocht, Pinchashacht FM. I'll play some of my favourite musical memories from my many journeys. So tune in Sunday nights, 9 to 10, on 88.7 FM for Kyol's Kishin. You're listening to Kilkenny Today with Morris O'Connor on Community Radio KilkennyCity.ie. Now I can tell you, welcome back to here to Community Radio Kilkenny City. Uh, Morris O'Connor, of course, with you now, coming up to around about 11 minutes to six. Uh, without further ado, Anne Shortrell, Director of Services in Agglestown Family Resource Centre, welcome. Well, thank you. Uh, we're not we're not talking to you um, just because you're out of the county or anything like that. And I suppose it's in your role as a spokesperson for the Family Resource Centre National Forum, and you've you've been looking for support from local Kilkenny TDs and presumably Carlow TDs as well to give their support to the idea of childcare staff to be well to be prioritising childcare staff in um, the vaccination rollout. Um, you know, there, you quoted, I think, in your press release, some, um, you know, something saying that although childcare has been deemed low risk, the evidence shows a higher rate of infection in childcare settings compared to primary and post-primary. Like, how, mu- how much of a difference and how much higher is that rate of infection looking like at the moment? Um, the HSE do monthly, um, I suppose, tests ar- around this, and it's based on their figures that we are going and um, it's, uh, you know, normally 3% of primary schools, it would be 4.1 or 4.5 in other cases of, of, of crashes. So um, you can see that, uh, you know, it's higher um, and also that we do need to be regarded as essential workers. Um, and if we're essential workers, you know, giving an essential service, then we need to be regarded um, higher up uh, for for the uh, vaccination. You've got to remember that our childcare workers are working unprotected. There are no masks, there are no screens, there are no um, 
no protection, no social distancing. It's possible uh, if you're going to do your childcare properly. So, and remember, we're working with children of frontline workers who, uh, you know, in most cases are coming off work in, in um, you know, hospitals and, and, and coming in, um, you know, and collecting their children. So it, it is a high risk. Uh, we're happy to to uh, do the service. We are are committed to childcare and the value of it, um, and we just want to be regarded as um, a frontline worker so that we can be vaccinated, at least uh, equivalent to teachers, which is at four as opposed to at eleven out of fifteen um, when it comes to priority rollout. Yeah, I was going to ask you that because it does it does seem like as if that's quite a, a wide discrepancy between um, the position on the, 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 the planning lists or the categorizations as it appears at the moment um, between um, your cohort of childcare workers that work for yourself and indeed all the family resource centres and creches and all the rest around the country. Um, yeah. the, the difference between them and, and, and teachers. Uh, have, you, have you had any kind of feedback uh, or have you inquired as to why that Kind of seen that sort of order of priority seems to have been put in place with that huge gap. Um, and did you get any kind of satisfactory answers around that from anybody? <laughs> I'm sorry to say that um, you know we're regarded as essential when it comes to needing our service. However, uh, childcare workers are the lowest paid. They are their um, right and entitlement um, are very you know in terms of conditions in employment are very very uh, small. I, I don't believe the government takes us seriously. We have tried and will continue to try. And this is um, looking for everybody to get behind us and understand so that we can put pressure on the government to make the right decision in this case. How many childcare workers are there actually, Anne, across the country, roughly? Well, I mean, childcare workers um, we are working uh, primarily in the family resource centres and um, childcare workers there there's 120 family resource centres all over the country um, over 55 um, centres would have community creches and, and childcare mm. services um, and uh, you know I mean from Carnoke, Kenny and South Tip um, which is the immediate area that your listeners will be interested in, there are um, uh, over 120 childcare workers. Yeah, it's not not a huge number, really, in the scheme of things. Um, kind of enrolling out a vaccination plan. Absolutely. Uh, to a small number like that, I suppose it doesn't. On the face of it, it doesn't seem. I suppose there might be, from the Department of Health or the HSE's point of view, maybe there'd be a sense of well, you know, if they start kind of um, listening to and bending the, the lists of uh, prioritisations and the categories for for one sector, they'll you know they'll be put under increasing pressure to do it for everybody else as well, and that, that might explain. The yeah. Reluctance to change there's, the plans. There's an element of that, but I, I'm just saying we are directed that we must open. If we don't open and offer the service, we don't get paid. And yeah. if you can be that adamant with one section, why aren't why treat them differently to other sections? Mm -hmm.
And how, what was the experience like between um, the you know uh, September and Christmas when I suppose all the schools were open, primary and secondary schools were open as well, and presumably uh, all the childcare facilities around the country were open as well. Like how did how did staff react, and how how did they feel about? COVID risk? Were they stressed or anxious or were they fairly comfortable about it? Well, there was there was a lot of anxiety at the very start as you can imagine. Yeah. As we got into it, um, it was fine. People were working the best way they could and as safely as possible. However, with the, with the um, rapid spread um, of the virus and the um, you know, within the community, like a lot of creches uh, are your closed pods or closed altogether. Before Christmas, there was a lot of a very deep concern uh, about this, and that hasn't gone away. No, certainly the um, those fears have become very real with the, the huge upsurge in numbers of. Uh, are only really starting to settle down now. So anyway, and um, your, yourself and your, your uh, I suppose on behalf of all the family resource centres around the country, the National Forum of Family Resource Centres, we've been calling on local Kilkenny and I presume also Carlo uh, TD, seeing that you're up in that part of the world, to um, to get behind you and provide you with some support in asking to be um, to have the, the prioritisation of childcare workers pumped up a fair bit, at least to presume to the level of teachers where they are on the order. So what, what sort of reactions have you been getting so far from the local TDs? Well, the local TDs are quite positive, uh, as in supportive to us, and I have already, um, you know, written and, and talked to the Minister for Health. Um, um, so, yeah, no, I would say the local TDs are very aware of what we do and how we do it, and are very supportive of it. Um, I just hope that that's hands out all over the country so that we can um, uh, I suppose be prioritised Yeah, are you optimistic then that you'll get some positive response from the HSE? Yeah, I'm very optimistic, now I know they're under pressure and I know the numbers are all time high and everybody wants to be vaccinated, however if you're offering a, an essential service, I do think um, and insisting that you stay open um, we we have to have, and also our, remember that um, we're very tied with ratios, how many children to how many staff we have, and when staff are out, we're under pressure enormously. If, if um, we had the vaccination, we could offer childcare, uh, you know, uh, without that kind of stress and strain. Yeah. It also yeah. would be, it also would alleviate a lot of stress and strain for frontline workers who are also concerned for themselves and their families, you know? And their children, indeed, yeah. So, look, I, yeah, hopefully you will get a positive response. It does sound like, um, you know, not an unreasonable ask, particularly when, when you're so far apart from teachers in the, the pecking order, if you want to call it that, for vaccinations. And we'll see, I suppose, um, coming days will, will may, may well uh, tell a tale, uh, but yeah. hopefully it will work out well for yourself and your... your um, colleagues in the various family resource centres and in general in childcare facilities around the county and the country. Absolutely. Thanks a million, thanks a million for joining us, Anne. Thank lovely you so much. Thank you. Thank you. You're very welcome. Have a lovely weekend. And you too. Bye-bye. Thanks, Anne.
Uh, and that was Anne Shortle, who's uh, Director of Services in Bagnallstown Family Resource Centre. But of course, speaking really, uh, to us this evening on behalf of the National Forum of Family Resource Centres. And we've, of course, plenty of, uh, we've at least four, I think, family resource centres here in um, in the county. Is there the city? Is a few of them I can think of. Uh, some of them I know better than, than others. And I hope safe and well and they do provide a wonderful service in the community that's all we've time for on today's Kilkenny today lovely to have you with us as usual um, I'd like to thank my guests I was Anne Shortall there Angela Ryan from Irish Water and Professor Carol LaRue from uh, University College Dublin before that and a huge thanks as usual to Declan Gibbons for running the desk for me and Anne Nolan for helping me produce today's show looking forward to being back with you again next Tuesday with another Kilkenny Today here on Community Radio Kilkenny City. Till then, have a great weekend, as safe, as well, as dry, as warm, as happy and uh, as good as you can. Thanks a million for joining us. Look forward to talking to you on Tuesday. Bye-bye. We are Community Radio Kilkenny City 88.7 FM.